This is the Healthy Sensitive. to The Healthy Sensitive. I'm Leah Burkhart, your resident HSP, introvert, all-around goofball. Hmm. Anyway, first, before I get started on today's episode, I do have some updates. I know I've mentioned that I'm putting together some online courses, so that's still in the works and I'm getting closer to launching, just as an FYI, so please stay tuned. As a little background, my intentions for the courses have been to so to keep them self-paced and to keep them online. I've dabbled a bit in having online seminars where people actually dial in and it's live and we're all at the same place at the same time, at least in a technological space. Um, I'm still very open to doing that, so if anyone wants to provide feedback as to whether that would be preferable to the more self-paced approach, again, super open. Uh, my sense, though, was, at least with the introverts and HSPs that dialed into that uh, pilot. Um, there's a little bit of a tug of war that happens. So, you know, when you say to introverts and HSPs, hey, <laughs> I've got a class, would you like to come? A lot of them really want to want to. And the challenge is getting the knowing in advance and being able to prepare your energy for a specific time on a specific day of the week, multiple days in a row. Um, and so what I found in the feedback that I got from the pilot was that they appreciated it after the class was over, they had access to that content whenever they wanted to access it. Uh, and they seemed to appreciate that I was really open about whether or not people had to actually attend or if they, if it was okay that they just listen in later on. And so since a lot of them really appreciated having that option, my next go-to has been to create these online self-paced courses. So I'm putting all of that out there primarily because I'm constantly open to feedback and I'm, I'm really just trying to provide resources for folks like me um, in a way that's most valuable. So that's just a little bit of background. Uh, let's see, and as I've mentioned countless times, uh, yeah, just to give you some background into why I'm putting these courses out there and what the content is all about, um, you know, I've mentioned that highly sensitive people and introverts often get a reputation for being softies, uh, snowflakes, they can't hack it, or maybe on the other end, they're aloof, uh, maybe they just hate humans, <laughs> you name it. Uh, most of the time, though, that actually couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, there's certainly times when you might hear an introvert say, I really don't want to see a human right now, but there isn't a true hatred of anyone. It's often the case that they're just frustrated by what feels to them like a like two polar impulses that are happening within them. There's one, especially for highly sensitive people, one impulse is to try and serve because they do tend to have the skill set to serve well in that they can come into a space, identify the needs of that space pretty well, not always, but more often than not. And so you might have a situation where a highly sensitive person wants to be the next Gandhi or wants to be the next Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, funny thing, though, these are people that had, they were lawyers, um, they were spokesmen, they were activists. Uh, you might also have a situation where they want to be healers, so they want to be doctors, they want to be nurses. All of these vocations, while honorable, and certainly they serve a large cohort of people, 
they can wipe you right on out. So again, tug of war, to use that phrase, there's an impulse to want to serve mixed with this other impulse that's almost primal, the primal desire for stability, for a sense of uh, feeling whole, feeling like you're battery can recharge. And so the challenge for highly sensitive people has seemed to have been, what do I do when I really want to participate in life? And I really want to serve the people around me to the best of my ability. And I do have some really cool abilities here. And how do I do that though, without getting completely wiped out? Because I don't want to be wiped out. I know what it feels like when I've meditated and I've exercised and I've gotten enough sleep and I feel so good. And I don't want to lose that in my you know, conquest for a better world. So my role, or at least what I'm trying to put out there is a set of tools that highly sensitive people can use to marry their, these two desires, because I don't think that they have to choose between them. And in fact, I think both they as individuals, as well as the world at large, loses something when we choose one or the other. We live in a, in a world right now that is filled with Twitter feeds and you know, one-liners and, you know, we kind of, we're seeing a, an erosion of nuance and an erosion of uh, complex conversations that really need to be had. And highly sensitive people and introverts tend to be very thoughtful people. They are the ones who are the people watchers. They come through and into a space wanting to be really clear about what's going on before they act. This world needs us. They need nuance. We need to inject ourselves and be more assertive in that injection. But we can't do that if we're too busy hiding. And we can't do that if we just try and pretend to be something other than we are, i.e. extroverts or, you know, we highly sensitive people won't serve the world well and we certainly won't serve serve ourselves well by trying to be a Tony Robbins or, uh, I'm not going to name political figures here, but a politician in the ways that we're seeing politicians behave now because we just aren't that way. That's not our strong suit. We can certainly inject ourselves into politics and we can become tremendous uh, motivational speakers, but it won't look like that. It's not going to look like the, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk's where they're working 20 hours a day and they're just thriving in the space of constant movement and work and all of those things. So it's like we have to create our own brand of... Uh, I don't know, service. We, we have to make it look like us. And the world needs our version of assistance because we see such a lack of it right now. So that's my, that's my diatribe. <laughs> that's my podium, if you will. And again, the courses that I'm putting out there are really to help people who want to help other people. And it's like I'm trying to provide tools for highly sensitive people and introverts to become extremely resilient. Like how do you bounce back quickly when your battery is wiped out? Uh, How do you communicate effectively so that you're really efficient in the things that you want to do in life and so that you're less likely to have your battery wiped out, but maybe you're just as effective. So that's where all of this is coming from. So the next class coming up, all of that being said, is how to be a highly sensitive superhero. And it's a series, so it's going to be part of a series, like a larger series. And part one is the foundation. Um, I'm playfully calling it show me paint the fence. (laughs) So it's building up a set of skills and a set of tools so that if you have them in place, no matter what it is that you want to do with your life and however it is you want to serve the world, 
you can use these tools to recharge your batteries and potentially even prevent overload so that you can be more effective. That was an extremely long introduction and housekeeping bit. But the upside to all of that, speaking of being resilient and bouncing back, that's actually the focus of today's podcast. So um, this is episode 37, in case you're curious, and the topic is resilience. So you hear this buzzword all the time. So here I am launching right in. Uh, What does it actually mean? You know, people are writing about resilience. They're talking about resilience. They're TED talking about resilience. I mean, you name it, it's everywhere. But what does it actually mean to have resilience? Why is it so important? And how is it correlated with success? And finally, how can highly sensitive people hone it, make use of it? The short version or the short sentence, I mean, in short, resilience is the ability to bounce back quickly, in particular after a nasty fall. That's about as simple a way as I can put it. Uh, I don't know whether highly sensitive people are more resilient than the general population. I haven't actually seen any research that speaks to it one way or the other. But here's one thing I do feel pretty confident about. If highly sensitive people want to be able to move in the world without getting blindsided by it, they really need to cultivate robust physical and emotional resilience. Think about it this way. If your nervous system is more open and sensitive to stimulus in your environment, doesn't it stand to reason that your system will be tested more frequently? I don't mean that more bad things will happen to you. Definitely not going the route of victimization here. I just mean you're more likely to feel more agitated more often by life's events when your nervous system is, well, it's firing on all cylinders all of the fudging time. So this is only more true during particularly trying times, you know, like when life's events go beyond the mundane, gee, I sure wish there wasn't traffic on this road, and maybe more into the realm of how am I going to get out of this unhealthy marriage or... How am I going to take care of my sick parent? Or why am I getting laid off? So that kind of brings me to, you know, on a personal level, my special brand of heart. And I'm trying to use this as an example, and I do hope it's helpful. But I recently went through a pretty difficult time. Uh, It's part of the reason I paused both writing blogs as well as recording podcasts for as long as a duration that I did. A relationship I was in was unraveling. sort of diehard status. (laughs) We'd been trying everything to get this thing to work well. And by the thing, I mean the relationship. Because I'm of the mind that when you're in a relationship, particularly romantic ones, but really any at all, there's really three stakeholders involved. There's me, you know, my cup. There's you, i.e. your cup. And then there's the relationship itself. And the relationship itself becomes its own organism. And the trick is to figure out how to feed my cup, your cup, and the cup of the relationship. And we just were having a hell of a time doing it. So at the end of the day, we, we weren't compatible. We had to let it go. And breakups are hard enough, but we were also financially intertwined. So he had invested a considerable amount of his personal money into the home we were living in and into our financial security more broadly. So both his and mine. So on top of all of that, I was transitioning into a new position at work. Uh, and eventually was even offered an opportunity to move out of the state that I was living in and that I was five generations deep in. So, you know, talk about having a, I've done some traveling, don't get me wrong, but I pretty much lived in the same state. And here I am getting an opportunity to move out of it. So all of these things are coming in all at once. So easy, 
right? Handle a breakup, quit a job with a company I'd been for, with for nearly five years, and by the way, a company that was very stable uh, and uh, had a lot of great benefits, settle our finances, uh, move states, no problem, <laughs> right? So except the, each of these steps weren't all that easy. At least they weren't quick. You know, each of them required a clear head. Each required what felt like a hundred micro steps and a certain amount of comfort being uncomfortable. Remarkably though, I got through it. I didn't like it. It wasn't my favorite flavor of life transition, but I was fine. Downcast, but fine. Frustrated, but fine. Furious sometimes, but still fine. Um, and I'm telling you this, dear listener, well, let's be honest. I'm telling you this at least a little bit to brag. I mean, just a little. Uh, because there have been times in my life when I have needed to navigate circumstances that were way less difficult to me and which I'm ashamed to say I dealt with poorly. Or at least I felt more poorly while I was dealing with them. So it's like there were things that have happened in my life that were less difficult objectively less complicated objectively, and which experientially I felt were much harder to navigate. But, so I'm, again, part of it is to brag, um, but I'm also sharing this experience with you because it serves as a great example of just how powerful some of the evidence-based resilience practices I speak about later in this article, article <laughs> in this podcast, really can be. So it's one thing for me to drone on and on about what this researcher or that speaker says will help one cultivate better emotional well-being. Um, it's a very different thing, though, for someone to say, hey, these are the evidence-based practices that worked for me personally. I have experience to speak that I can speak to uh, suggesting that even though I was going through a hard time, I was able to get through my own brand of hard. Now, I understand that breakups and moving and conflict and job changes, you know, they can be uncomfortable, but they certainly don't compare to, say, war or cancer. Uh, but something you should know about me is that for me, a relationship, a relationship falling apart felt like war. At least this one did. <laughs> um, it was a hodgepodge of breakup mixed with financial gymnastics mixed with family conflict since... It did stir the emotions of other members of my family. I mean, you get the idea. It felt like a kind of death because this relationship, this thing my partner and I had created together and that we were trying to keep alive each in our own way, it was a kind of living, breathing thing. And we, or maybe I should just say I, was putting things into motion that would ultimately lead to its end. And on the flip side, there, you know, I will say on the flip side, there are lots of things that other people get triggered by, which I, which just don't trigger me. And they would just be like, oh my God, this was so hard. And I might say, what's the big deal? I don't get it. So I'm sure there are lots of people who might be listening to this and saying a breakup. I don't get it. It's a big deal. Um, you know, all I'm trying to get at here is this is my brand of hard. So this is the thing that just cracks down into something really primal in me and wrangles me. So as you're listening to me talk about the tools that I describe, and I try and put my own personal 
elements in here so that you can get more of an example of it. What I really encourage you to do is think about what your special brand of hardwood look like. You know, what are the things that trigger you and just wrangle you? And how might you inject these resources into your life during those times, whenever life kind of smacks you down with your special brand of hard? Because um, I didn't get through that hurricane of an emotional trial as well as I did by accident. My ability to navigate it with relative ease was the product of years of study in the realm of health, wellness, contentment, positive psychology, you know, all around self-love Jedi ninja training. <laughs> Although, disclaimer, I do not by any stretch of the imagination consider myself to be a fully-fledged emotional Jedi ninja. Just want to make sure that's clear. So what was it that helped me get through all of it? And more importantly, how might you use those strategies the next time you're in a situation that's painful? So there are a number of things really. And to give you a little bit of background, I'm organizing this in two parts. Um, the first part covers five primary evidence-based tools that I've used and which are known to help anyone in any circumstance um, and with really any temperament. So it's not just special HSP stuff. This is resilience building for all humans. Um, and examples of people who champion these tools include Sean Aker, Darlene Menini, I do hope I'm pronouncing the names correctly, um, Cheryl Sandberg in partnership with Adam Grant, a number of others. So these are big names and people who have either endured really difficult things in their own lives and or have studied extensively how to come back from difficult things in life. And then the second part that I'll be sharing are tools that I built more specifically. I'm getting you kind of a snippet of what I'm putting into the intro of my course. And that's more specific for highly sensitive people, things that I found to be helpful. There's a lot of overlap, so bear with me on that. But I'm really just trying to organize it so you can get a sense of, you know, kind of the, the foundation of what will work for anybody. And then some specific caveats that I might make for HSPs. So... Part one, um, first, the tools to cultivate resilience. First thing I would say is during difficult times, remember that it's temporary. Now I know that can be very cute. Just remember that it won't last forever. That will work, <laughs> like please. But really, seriously, the research backs this up. The trick is to hack your system so that you can actually start to believe that whatever challenge you're facing won't last forever. You might know the, the trite phrase, this too shall pass. There's a reason why it's so powerful and why that phrase has survived probably thousands of years in, I guess, Buddhist philosophy. So as an example, someone who's stuck in their story might say, I can never stick to a diet. So that would be someone who maybe has a really tough relationship with food. Well, you can say, I can never stick to a diet. Whereas someone who can pull out of that never realm might say, you know, I go off my diet every time I eat out. Someone who's having a tough time in a relationship might say, I'll always be alone. Whereas someone who knows that things are all temporary might say, I really need to be alone right now. For me, it was tremendously helpful to remember just how temporary this whole thing that I was going through would likely be. I could taste what it would feel like on the other side of those circumstances. And I concede that some people, I mean, when I say I could taste it, it's because the things I was going through did have an end date. I just, I did need to get over, you know, get through the relationship. We needed to end it. I needed to move out of the house. I needed to get to my next location. Like, so there were really final 
um, I guess I would say pockets of time or they were clear end points, even if there weren't necessarily clear end dates. And so that was really helpful for me to get through it because it was clear. It's almost like when you're running and you know what the final or where the, the, uh, the finish line is. I do want to say that there are many people out there who might be in circumstances that don't have a clear end date. For you out there, here's something interesting. If you are in a challenging situation and you see no end of those circumstances in sight, like there's no clear finish line, research shows you can still hack the temporary mind game. It turns out that how we think we will feel in the future about a situation is really unreliable. Often we're wrong. So people who win the lottery think they'll be happily ever after. Nope. Um, they generally go back to their baseline experience of happiness. Um, people who lose a limb assume they will always feel dejected and less than. But no, they often go back to their original happiness baseline. So whatever has you tangled up in emotional webbing, just try and remember that number it. I mean, this too shall pass, even if the circumstances don't change. Like, irrespective of what happens in the environment specifically, your experience of that thing in, will change. So it's either the circumstances themselves and or your experience of those circumstances. Either way, this too really shall pass. So something I invite you to practice, the next time that you're going through a difficult time, try and reframe it in the language that you use with it in a way that brings home the fact that it is not eternal. So for example, if you're trying to lose weight and you think you'll never be able to, rewrite it to say, I have not yet lost the weight. I'm looking for a strategy that will work for me. Or if you're working on your finances, don't say, I'll never get out of debt. Instead, try and say, I'm working really hard to get out of debt. Second, this is, uh, change your focus. So I mentioned Dr. Darlene Menini. Uh, she did a whole lecture on this, by the way, and she's the one who organized it, these five things in this way. This, a lot of what I'm talking about in this first part is coming from her presentation. Uh, in her lecture on resilience, oh, also side note, um, I do have a link to that talk in the show notes, FYI. Anyway, so in her lecture on resilience, she talks about an experiment done on a group of men. Uh, they were in the latter stages of their lives, and they were asked to behave in the way they used to when they were living in the 1950s. The room these men were led into, uh, they had films from the 50s, there were newspapers from the 50s, the works. Like, they were told, hey, just to be clear, we're not asking you to pretend you're living in the 50s. We only ask that you try and act like the man you were during that time period. After only a few days of this experiment, the men showed improvements in their strength, their physical strength, and they all looked on average three years younger. So in life, we process what we focus on. Um, Sam Harris speaks to this in his most recent podcast uh, episode when he talks about, you know, our reality really is all going on in our minds. Like we, he talks about space and about time and then about how we grasp on to things in that space and time. And he focuses in particular on attention. And so attention is extremely powerful, so much so that we can track it. We can't focus on every detail around us. We just don't have that kind of capacity. What we focus on, therefore, has a huge impact on our relationship to our environment. 
So if you focus on what's going wrong in your life, you're likely to stay miserable. But if you focus on what's going right, you're likely to promote emotional well-being regardless of what's happening for you. In my case, it was easy to focus on what was going well. You know, I have a dog and a cat and they're super sweet. Um, I don't know if you know this, but animals are fabulous at getting your mind off of stressful things. They're super present little beings. Um, I also had a roof over my head. I had electricity, running water. I wasn't physically being threatened in any significant way. I had steady employment and external job offers coming on. So it's kind of hard to feel too upset with circumstances like those. So as a practice that you might play with, each day write down three things that you are grateful for. Continue this practice for at least 21 days. It's an evidence-based technique and it's shown to change the way your mind maps. So you can see the physiological changes in your brain when you engage in this exercise. Um, Sean Aker reports on this quite often. There's a number of people really, but his presentation, if you look up his TED Talk, for example, he's super compelling as a speaker. Highly recommend it. So number three, express your negative emotions. So this is kind of fun. It's almost the inverse of the one I talked about before, which was think about what's going well. And this third one, it's express what's hard. And it can be a little counterintuitive because in expressing what's hard seems to be focusing on something that you would therefore create more of. But there's, a, you know, sit tight, there's a technique here. So a study was composed that broke a group of students into two subgroups. The first wrote about truly traumatic experiences they had had in the past and or were going through at the present time. The alternate group were told to just write about uh, something mundane. I mean, I think it was about what their room looked like. I, I mean, something very neutral. The group who was asked to relive, how funny, to relive their traumas initially experienced more stress. But after some time, their stress levels went down. So blood tests revealed improved immune system functioning, all from being willing to be able to express their most vulnerable truths. Note, these writings did not have to be stored. They could be tossed, burned, ripped to shreds just as soon as they were written down. So there by no means was this, you know, guideline that suggested you needed to write this down and have it sitting out for someone else to pick up later and read. It was just having the practice of putting your thoughts on paper. And there was, of course, a catch to this. It wasn't just that these students were asked to write down their traumas. That by itself, I don't think did so much. It didn't hurt but it didn't help. The goal after getting the negative emotions down on paper was to get curious about them. Why does this particular experience have so much influence on my emotional state? Why does this hurt so much? What are some of the positive traits I now possess that are a product of this experience? What did I learn from this experience? Why am I a better person now than I was before because of that experience? If one can successfully answer those questions, it can encourage what researchers call post-traumatic growth. So we all, well, most people, if you're interested in these kind of topics, you probably know about post-traumatic stress. And the idea is, uh, you know, you can relive a trauma over and over in unexpected times of your life. Like it just comes, comes back in. Well, post-traumatic growth is... After having gone through trauma, you grow in your capacity, your resiliency, it, it, it improves after the trauma. 
So it's not just that you bounce back to where you were before, you bounce back and you move forward. In her book, Option B, a book about how one can recover after a difficult life event, Cheryl Sandberg, you might know her from her book, Lean In, uh, and in partnership with Adam Grant, speak about how this, along with a slew of other strategies, uh, can help promote resilience in these circumstances. So for me personally, I've kept a journal since I was eight years old, and I can promise you that I wasn't thinking at eight that I was engaging in a healing practice. Nevertheless, some of my darkest and most vulnerable moments are captured in those pages. More often than not, the very thing I was struggling with was, what can I take from this? I was desperate to sew the event into a larger fabric of meaning. I wanted to blanket myself with it and feel like I had a grounding somewhere. I just thought it was something unique to me, though, when I was doing this, because don't we all kind of think we're super special and that our pain is oh so very unique to us? That during those long nights when I felt alone and villainous and triumphant and victimized all at once, my journal was one place I could turn to. It was the one space where I could pour out my chaotic thoughts, often in the midst of it, creating something useful out of the chaos. So here's a practice for you. Try writing about a difficult time in your life. Maybe don't focus on something traumatic as a starting point unless you have support. And by support, I mean the support of a therapist, the support of a coach, you know, someone to help facilitate this process for you. Uh, otherwise, just something that was difficult on a scale of one to 10, maybe don't start with a 10. And what was that uncomfortable thing that you got through? And what did you learn from that experience? How might it have made you a better person? All right, so number four, connect. Are you a health nut like myself? <laughs> um, do you consider yourself to be a pretty conscientious person? If you're an HSP, you probably are. Do you think that doing healthy things will help you live longer? It might, and it might not. So research tells us about the importance of being socially connected. There's some evidence that suggests that if you have two groups of people, you have one group who practices healthy habits, so the conscientious, take their vitamins, eat their Wheaties people, but maybe they don't have other people they can call upon and connect to in times of strife, versus another group who might have common unhealthy habits like smoking, poor nutrition, and they might even be showing signs of metabolic imbalance, like maybe they're overweight and their blood sugar's out of balance and their, high, their blood pressure's high. Uh, the group who is well, but, but this group who has otherwise unhealthy habits and markers is well connected. The group who is well connected will probably live longer on average than the group who is healthy otherwise, but is unconnected. How about dem apples? <laughs> um, so I can't say enough how much of a difference it made to me to have support. You know those scenes where rock stars, you know, like they jump into the crowd and they get carried along by the fans underneath them? That's how my experience felt in moving through my tough relationship slash move slash job change slash all the things. They offered up their ears, their shoulders, even their homes to me if they thought it would help. Um, they listened to me as I stumbled around trying to come up with solutions. They gave references to financial advisors. They cooked me dinner. They shared their pain with me so I could remember that I wasn't the only one on the planet who stumbles. 
I don't know that I have ever been more humbled. For so long in my life, I thought independence was something to strive for, and I still do cherish my freedom and my autonomy. This is all the more true for me, I think, because I'm not just an HSP, but also an introvert, so I really, oh, I recharge when I have some time alone. But that period of time was the first time life really forced me to look up and see just how lucky I am to have truly amazing people in my life. My people were then and will forever remain in my gratitude list. And I can't imagine having gotten through that time period as gracefully or at least as intact as I did without them. So if you're out there thinking, oh no, I've got this, the I've got this mentality, uh, you might got this, but it would be so much easier if you can reach out to someone and if you feel like you do have a person you can reach out to in times of strife and you can say, I'm really, I'm struggling. I need your help. Please help. So here's a practice. Each day for the next week, reach out to someone you love and tell them thank you for being fabulous, for doing something for you that you otherwise might not have done for yourself, or just do something kind for them that they aren't expecting. This is not only helpful for them, you know, you're kind of investing in your relationship, but there's research on this. There's that research thing again. So uh, back at Sean Aker, he points to acts of kindness as being, well, not maybe, maybe not so altruistic, in, at least in the sense that every time you help someone else, what seems to happen is it makes you feel good. All right, so fifth, stay present. You knew this was going to come into the fold. Um, there is pain, and then there's suffering. Pain is a sensation. Um, suffering is often the story we make up about the sensation or pain that we're currently experiencing. So, <clears throat> you know, we're fretting about what it means for the future or we're judging ourselves for our past behavior that might have led to this painful moment. Um, pain isn't really avoidable. I mean, other than, you know, you can pre prevent, like, you know, maybe don't do stupid things and you won't stumble quite as hard. You know, like you wear a helmet and then you won't bump your head as hard. So that's not what I mean by being unavoidable, but rather, you know, once an accident has taken place, once an emotion has been pulled on, you can't really just avoid pain. Life is a painful enterprise. But suffering, suffering, it can't necessarily be prevented or avoided, but it can certainly be dimmed and possibly, if not reduced, maybe removed altogether if it's worked with well. So one of the best practices to integrate into your life if you want to increase your ability to stay present and by virtue of doing that, reducing suffering, is mindfulness meditation. So if you think meditation is just for hippy-dippies, don't get your tie-dye shirt into a bunch just yet. It's been proven to reduce stress in countless contexts. It's even helped a group of med students to reduce their stress levels, though nothing changed with regard to their circumstances. So ironically, getting more present, even when your life feels painful, can reduce your physical experience of the pain. Uh, the way that we can measure this, by the way, is with inflammatory markers called, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, cytokines. I might be pronouncing it wrong. Anyway, the primary reason it does this is because it can reduce your body's production of cortisol. It turns out the volume of your system, and inadvertently, 
like it, it turns down the volume of your system and inadvertently dampens the intensity of the pain you feel in the process. So it's this weird counterintuitive thing where if you're in pain, the more focused you can be in the present, in the midst of that pain, the less the pain takes a hold of you. It's like you're taking the keys back. You're not giving pain and suffering the keys to the car. Um, for years leading up to the breakup and subsequent move, in my case, I'd been working on a steady meditation and yoga practice each day. Uh, I still do, actually. So I work with a teacher one-on-one -on, -one on some of these principles, and it makes all the difference to have a framework to use when trying to navigate difficult circumstances. So when journaling and talking the ears off of my poor friends didn't do the trick, I always had my breath, I had my body, I still have my breath, I still have my body, and so anytime I started judging myself for my shortcomings, and believe me, I have plenty of material for that, or my would-be fiancé's shortcomings, which is silly, I have no control over his behavior, and I'm not qualified to say that any of what he was doing is a sign of a shortcoming. So what good does it do for me to judge him for it? <laughs> uh, I at least had my mindfulness practice that reminded me that judgment of any kind probably isn't very helpful. So here's a practice. Try this simple exercise. Breathe in for four seconds, hold for seven seconds, exhale for eight seconds. When your exhale is longer than your inhale, it can help activate your parasympathetic, that's your calm, nervous system. In other words, it can help calm you down. <laughs> uh, it also gives your brain something else to do rather than fretting about the things you can't control. And there's plenty of other exercises you can look to. Uh, if you're looking for more, please reach out to me. I could probably give you way more than you had ever wanted. <laughs> so anyway, those are the five strategies that have been shared in fairly rigorous academic circles and championed by a number of reputable healthcare practitioners and mental health professionals. So I'm just a smidge further and want to talk a bit about the way I've organized this to speak directly excuse me, to highly sensitive people and introverts. I've organized the next, it's eight different things, and I've organized them in an acronym because those are easier for me to remember. And the acronym is STRONGER. So the next set of things I'm going to be pulling together, just if you can't remember them all at once, just remember STRONGER. <laughs> so the first, S, is spiritual practice. This doesn't mean you have to have a religious practice. Rather, it's about having a practice that moves you into the realm of something larger than yourself. So in my case, a framework that's been exceptionally helpful has been the philosophy of Krishnamacharya's yoga. Uh, I have a practice. I work one-on-one -on -one with a guide. Um, it's just all really lovely. But for you, it might be a faith-based religion. Maybe you go to church. Um, it could be time spent outside gardening. Maybe nature is your church. It's whatever allows you to put a larger meaning on the experiences you have in life. Um, let's see. <laughs> Going down. So T for stronger. The T is time to recharge. The idea of a pilgrimage fits kind of nicely into this next topic. So everyone needs time to recharge. Highly sensitive people are not unique to this. How did I say pilgrimage in time of recharge? Oh, anyway, so silly. Let's back up for a second here. In that first practice, developing a spiritual practice, 
Um, the word pilgrimage, I wanted to bring that up and it was in my notes. Pilgrimage is, at least by definition, it's like going somewhere on a journey that is sacred. This is something that Elaine Aaron spoke to really beautifully. So I just wanted to say this excerpt. So my apologies, I was kind of, my notes got a little jumbled. Elaine Aaron writes, summer is vacation time. So whenever you can travel this summer or not, let's talk about real HSP travel. As some of you know, last summer, my husband and I embarked on a six month sabbatical, as he called it. For me, it was a pilgrimage. A pilgrimage is defined as an intentional journey, possibly a long one, to a goal sacred to you. A pilgrimage is a person, a pilgrim, excuse me, is a person who journeys, especially a long distance, to a sacred place as an act of religious devotion or in search of a sacred goal. I will tell you more about mine someday, but let's talk about what might be yours. Because if you're an HSP, I can be fairly certain that you are probably spiritual in some way. Spiritual has many meanings. Look it up if you wish. But maybe that's good. You can define it as you wish, and that means you should think seriously about a pilgrimage. If you Google pilgrimage sites, you'll be amazed by the possibilities. So it's something to consider. What is a place you consider sacred that you would like to journey to? Could it be an inward rather than outward pilgrimage? Would you do this alone or would you do it with others? How long would it take you to get there? Travel time, retreat time, whatever. What cost would you be willing to incur to reach this sacred place? If there are obstacles, even if they seem insurmountable, if you get wildly creative, how might you imagine you could surmount them? So um, in that sense, the, when you're thinking about a spiritual practice, I loved that, and that whole excerpt again is by Elaine Aaron. I love the concept of going on a pilgrimage because you can make whatever pilgrimage it is that you think is valuable to yourself. But what she identifies beautifully is that highly sensitive people do seem to need some connection to something beyond themselves. I'm pretty sure that's probably true of most humans, highly sensitive or not, but it seems to be especially true for HSPs. So that now segues nicely into this realm of T, time to recharge. So everyone needs time to recharge. That's just a fact of life. Highly sensitive people aren't unique, but HSPs frequently navigate the world around them better when they have time to recharge, so much so that it's, it's practically a food group. Um, what I will say about HSPs is... They are unique in, in, my, in my experience of those that I've come across. They tend to be really lousy at boundaries. And part of that is because it feels so good to make other people feel good. So what highly sensitive people have a tendency of, to do is they will give all of their energy to everyone else. And then whenever time is left over in the day, that's what they will allow themselves for time to recharge. You have to learn to say no to people. HSPs struggle with that more often than most, <laughs> um, but it's vital. Brene Brown, if you don't know her, please look her up. She's amazing. She speaks to this really well when she says, and I'm paraphrasing here, you can either choose to be uncomfortable and honest right now, or you can choose to be resentful a long time later. It's always better to choose courage over comfort. That's part of what it means to have integrity. So what counts as recharge time? It's anything that leaves you with more energy than you had when you got there. So maybe you feel recharged by having time alone. Maybe you feel recharged while being around loved ones. 
The idea isn't that it has to be prescribed as an activity or non-activity. The idea is for it to be something that feeds you. So think about it this way. Build a green zone into your day. A green zone in city planning is a zone that's planned unplanned. So it's not built, there's no building that's going to be built there. It's for the community to make decisions on. What are some green zones that you could plan into your day? So again, stronger. So have a spiritual, spiritual practice and have time to recharge. R, relationships. Speaking of boundaries, <laughs> um, this next important section is about relationships. So I've spoken about the challenges HSPs have in this area quite a bit. Whether you're an introvert, extrovert, HSP, non-HSP, we all need our people. The primary challenge for HSPs is learning how to be discerning with our relationships. We have a tendency to attract folks who can drain us. Not good. You'll notice a lot of articles speaking to the way in which HSPs often attract narcissists and other not so whole individuals. And most of that comes about, in my opinion, because we fear conflict and we love to make other people feel better about themselves. So in the most shadow side of this, it can almost be kind of codependent. You know, who better for us to feed than a hungry ghost of an emotional creature who forever wants our affirmations of no, you're okay-edness. <laughs> so as I mentioned above, it's important to connect when you're trying to build resilience, but it's also important to be discerning with whom you connect. So a quick test. Think about the top five people you spend your time with. Who among them are examples of people who, after you leave, you walk away feeling enriched, alive, and rejuvenated? If the answer isn't all five, you might want to explore how to change some things. Oh, outlets. So let's say that you can't get rid of the life suckers right away, or let's say that you have a life that, at least for now, is pretty draining. What can you do? That brings me to outlets. So highly sensitive people naturally process things more deeply. We take in more data and we digest it longer. That's all well and good, but it can lead to burnout pretty quickly, especially in a world that caters more to extroverts and uh, sensation seekers. So one way to offset this is to have an outlet, a means of effectively digesting all that you take in. For some, it can be making or listening to music. For others, it might be writing. For still others, it could be dance or some form of moving the body. So think about things that when you do them, you feel like you're able to process through your emotions really effectively and efficiently and parcel out what matters most to you. N, nutrition. You knew a health coach wasn't going to get through an entire podcast without talking about food. Come on now. Um, so this matters for HSPs as much as for anyone else. I can make an entire podcast just about this, so I'll try and keep it simple. Examples of things that are specific to HSPs. Avoid caffeine, other than maybe green tea. Uh, avoid alcohol. Avoid processed foods. Balance your blood sugar with protein and fiber in every meal. Stay hydrated. Don't leave the house without food. Take omega-3s, a multivitamin, and a B-complex vitamin. Uh, consider taking chamomile tea, nearby, having it nearby for evenings. Eat like a king in the morning, a queen in the afternoon, a pauper at night. Um, eat foods that leave you with more energy than you had when you got there. These are just some basic run-of-the-mill things, but all of them seem to have a particularly beneficial effect for highly sensitive people. I'm going through all of this super duper fast. So as I've mentioned before, these are all covered in my online courses. And even if you don't wanna wait for the course, if you have questions ever, please just write to me. Um, go to my website, contact me. I'm always happy to give more info. So G, growth practice. So this is the part where I talk about getting comfortable being uncomfortable. 
If you're a highly sensitive person and you want to have a rich life that allows you to follow your dreams without getting worked up or overworked, you have to work at it, just like a muscle. So Andy Mort speaks to this beautifully in his podcast. Um, He talks about capacity zone. Uh, I have a link to that particular podcast episode in the show notes, so you can take a look. But anyway, the idea is to test what you think is possible by gently pushing the boundaries, but not in a no pain, no gain sort of way, but rather... You want to do it in a sort of gentle prodding sort of way. So try this. Think about the kind of things you wish you could do, but you're afraid to. How might you gently move in that direction? Let's say, for example, that you really want to get better at public speaking. Maybe you have a dream of speaking at a TED Talk, but you have a paralyzing fear of public speaking, which is super common, by the way. Evidently, Americans are more afraid of public speaking than any other thing, so you're not alone if you don't like it. Well, if you're trying to become more comfortable with it, you might start by joining Toastmasters or by having like going to a book club so that you get more comfortable speaking with people that you don't know really that well. I mean, the idea is just whatever it is you're trying to work on, work on it like you would a muscle. Increase it by gradual increments. In my case, I love to experience new things. I love to meet new people and I love to travel, but I find I get easily over aroused by it. So I also have a hard time sleeping in new places. I start to push, like I, I get drained really quickly. I, like it's just, it's this really weird tug of war. So the boundary I might push, I might just gradually move into these places. So as an example, I started by going to places that I knew I could come home quickly from. Then I would make a choice to go to a place and stay the night, but I would maybe bookend it with a day of rest before I go and a day of rest after. And then gradually the duration of time that I could leave the house and like by house, I mean, leave my home and stay in a place that's not my home, go, you know, expanding it ever so gradually until I could get to a place where I'm going for several weeks. So, but I didn't just do a crash course in long-term travel. I gradually started to expand on what I could become comfortable with. Um, e is exercise. One thing I'll say about HSPs is that they have a tendency to get stuck in their heads. That's not necessarily a problem because sometimes it can be lovely. In fact, we can get lost in a daydream, a meditation practice. You know, we can be attentive to a book we want to write. There's lots of cool things about getting lost in thought. Sometimes, though, it can be stressful and uncomfortable, which still isn't even necessarily bad because falling in love is stressful and at least a little bit uncomfortable. But we have a great association with that. So stress, as researcher Kelly McGonigal says, is only a problem if you have a negative relationship with it. But let's say you're doing something stressful, it feels meaningless, and you think it sucks. This is the perfect time to implement physical exercise. It takes all that stressful goo, cortisol, adrenaline, (laughs) you know, and it channels it toward a better workout and it makes you feel better. Plus, exercise is absolutely marvelous for all kinds of things. It helps you develop both physical and emotional resilience. It improves your memory. It's just all kinds of good. Moving is always a good idea. Um, The final one is rest. This is a similar category to time to recharge, but I think it's still important to tease out as a separate category. You need to build in time that's intentionally geared toward nothingness. This can also be time that you recharge, but they aren't necessarily one and the same. So what do you do when you want to do nothing? 
is kind of the question I'm posing here. So rest is a particularly important thing for creative HSPs, you know, in a country that's always telling us to do more, eat more, be more, have more. The reality is that rest can be one of the most productive things we do. It allows our systems to regenerate and digest experiences. I'll even put sleep in this category. So it's vital. But many highly sensitive struggle to get enough sleep. So I don't want to make you feel more anxious about the lack of sleep you're getting. Anyway, ultimately what I'm trying to advocate for here is the art of doing nothing. As Pooh says, doing nothing often leads to the very best of something. All right, so I know I just like exploded all kinds of stuff all up onto you. And the last thing I want to say in terms of what I'm summarizing the uh, like the set the eight things I just covered with stronger. It's not like they are mutually exclusive. So you can have a spiritual practice that's also helping you to recharge or your exercise might also be a recharge thing or when you're uh, paying attention to your nutrition that you might love to cook and the act of cooking might help you recharge or perhaps connecting with people. You know, like when I talk about relationships, there are highly sensitive extroverts. So you might actually find that spending time with your people is a kind of recharging. So I'm not suggesting that these all have to be siloed as you only are doing one or the other, but I'm teasing them out because I do think there's value in giving attention to each of these components and in particular for highly sensitive people. Uh, and I'll sort of conclude by saying all of these things are, you know, an intention to help you build resilience and keep in mind, resilience isn't a fixed trait. It's something we can cultivate. I would argue it's something we all should cultivate. You know, this is all the more true for highly sensitive people. We have a lot to give to the world and, you know, we could really make this world a much better place if we had the tools to recharge after our efforts. So... Um, as I said, this was a rather long podcast. I'm trying to get more meat into each one of them. I'm including a link to the show notes in the podcast episode. I'm also linking it to a blog that I wrote recently about resilience. If you have any questions, though, at all, whether it's about the upcoming classes that I'll be launching or you don't want to wait for a class, you've got a question, can I please just message you? The answer is yes, yes, all yes. Uh, you can reach me by going directly to my website at www.thehealthysensitive.com. Just put your name in the contact box. I will get back to you. If you want to email me directly, I currently still have my private email, uh, leahburkhart360 at gmail.com. I'm going to be having an email that links to my website very shortly, so I'm a little reluctant to go that route. So what I will say is the best way is probably just to go directly through the website for now. And yeah, whew, finally, <laughs> you got through it. So if you made it to the end, congratulations, you're a trooper. Um, always love to hear any feedback if you have it. And otherwise, I will just say thank you so much for listening. And I will speak with you next week. Bye.